Well, hello, everyone. This is now week six of our absences together since we are still waiting for the, the clear on the coronavirus. So we are still talking about the right course of action and our government officials are discussing when they are going to reopen everything back to normal. So we're still talking about when we can meet and what our process might look like if there are any changes when we do get back together. So we will keep you informed of that as we get a little bit closer. So before we were uh, pausing and focusing on Easter this past Sunday, we had been looking at the seven churches that are listed in the book of Revelation that the Apostle John wrote to way back in the year 90 A.D. while he was on the island of Patmos and this amazing revelation that God had given to him. So we need to remember that these are not only historical churches in the time of John, but these are also typological churches that speak about churches in our day and age today and, in fact, all throughout New Testament history Churches and individual Christians will be able to find themselves within the pages of this book of Revelation. So the first church that we looked at was the church at Ephesus, and they were the loveless church. And while they were doing many good things, they had neglected the most important thing, and that was developing a love relationship with the Lord. The second church that we looked at was the church at Smyrna. They were the persecuted church, and they remained faithful in the midst of terrible persecution, Persecution that you and I would likely not know in our day, and they were considered to be faithful in these very difficult times. The third church we looked at is the Church of Pergamum. They were the tolerant church. They were solid doctrinally, but they had turned a blind eye to the idolatry and the immorality that was taking place in their church. The fourth church we looked at was the church at Diathera, and this was known as the sinful church. So not only did they tolerate the idolatry and the immorality, it is very likely that they participated in it and taught that it was okay. And so there was a very swift judgment that was going to come against them unless they repented of their ways. Now today we're going to look at the fifth church. This is the church at Sardis. And this church is known as the dead church. So let's look together in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 6 and what God's word says to us today. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we're going to follow a very familiar outline as we have over the last several weeks. One of the noted absences in this outline is that there is not a formal commendation to the church as we will examine in just a few moments. So number one in our major outline would be the messenger. Again, back in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. 
So just like always, the angel is the pastor. It would be the elder, it would be the elders, the leaders, whoever it was that was given the responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the church. Now, as we get to the messenger himself, we see a combination of not only who he is, but we also see what it is that he does. And this has been true in each of the books, excuse me, each of the churches that we have examined so far. For example, in Revelation 2.1 to the church at Ephesus, the messenger reveals himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. And in these verses, we would understand that Jesus is presenting himself as the sovereign God. Secondly, the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2.8, the messenger reveals himself as the first and the last who is dead and has come to life, says this. This describes Jesus in the fullness of deity as demonstrated through his power over death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his ultimate victory in his ascension back to the throne. The third church we looked at, Revelation 2.12 to Pergamum, the messenger reveals himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, and he says this. This means that he is the word of God, and he upholds God's righteous standards. And unless this church was to repent, he was on his way to hand out judgment to them. And then the last church we looked at, the church at Thyatira, in Revelation 2.18, the messenger reveals himself as the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, and he says this. Very clearly, as the Son of God, he is presenting himself as the fullness of God, and he is the divine judge that is on his way to act. So to the church at Sardis, we see a combination of who he is and what he does. Verse 1b, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. So the seven spirits of God represent the fullness of the spirit. Now, as we think about the seven spirits of God, we need to remember that seven isn't always to be understood as a literal number. It often represents Something figuratively and most, most uh, commonly it would, it would represent perfection or completion. If you remember back in the time of Jesus' ministry and he was teaching the disciples about forgiveness and Peter asked him, should I forgive my brother seven times, literal times, and Jesus said no, seven times seventy representing the perfection or the completion that is represented by the number seven. So as we go back and look in the opening verses of John's letter in Revelation 1-4, we read this. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So John makes reference already about the seven spirits, but it's also possible that this is a reference back to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2, where the Holy Spirit is described in some detail. Verse 1 reads, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Most clearly that speaks about Jesus. And then in verse 2 it says, 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, Isaiah isn't necessarily describing seven characteristics of the spirit of God or seven attributes of the spirit of God. But what he is describing is the fullness of the function or the action of the spirit. Since Isaiah makes this reference very clearly in 11.1 to who we would understand to be a messianic prophecy, Jesus then fulfills the description of the Holy Spirit as given in Isaiah. So here in Revelation, Christ is speaking to his church at Sardis and to all the churches through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, through the joint work of the Trinity, has and holds the seven spirits of God and has and holds the seven stars. Now, the seven stars, as also referenced in Revelation 1-4, would represent the pastors or the elders or the leaders that would be over that would rule over each of these churches that are mentioned. So the description then, the seven spirits of God holding the seven stars affirms his sovereign rule. Jesus rules supremely not only over this church, but over all the churches and over all people and over the universe that he has created. And he does this through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is no longer physically present on the earth, but we know Him to be the omnipresent God, and He is omnipresent through the presence, the work, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in creation. He's active in regeneration. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers. He seals all believers. He fills all believers. He controls and guides and teaches all believers. He also leads and comforts all believers. And so as we reflect the role of the Holy Spirit and recognize that Jesus speaks to the churches through the Holy Spirit, we recognize that Jesus, the Spirit, the the God the Father, the Trinity, is part and parcel, all working together to do all that God says He has done and He will do. Each member of the Trinity shares the exact same attributes, although they are represented to us in three distinct Person. So here's what we have. We have the messenger who is the sovereign God speaking to his church through the Holy Spirit. Now, number two in our outline, we look now at his rebuke. The latter part of verse one says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. So the first thing that Jesus says to this church is that I know your deeds, that you have a name, and that you are alive. Now when Jesus says that you have a name, what he is saying here isn't really to be understood as a compliment. Now most recently when I was recovering from my heart surgery and I was in the hospital and I was beginning to get up and shuffle around the hallways, the nurses would always say to me, you look great. Now that wasn't a compliment on my exterior appearance. It was a compliment in the sense that for a 55 year old man that has just gone through open heart surgery and is able to stand up and walk through the halls of this hospital, hey you're looking pretty good. 
There weren't any model agents out there trying to sign me up. Nobody was looking to take my picture. It wasn't a compliment on my, on my appearance. It was simply a recognition that Jesus knows their deeds and he knows that they have a name, that they are alive. Now, when Jesus says that I know your deeds, what he says is, I know you're doing things. I know that there are activities taking place within the four walls of the church. But from the context, this would likely be considered very superficial works. The reason is that this is mixed in with the rebuke. There isn't a formal commendation. And so Jesus isn't patting them on the back for all that they're doing. He is really setting them up to hear and to understand the rebuke that he is about to give to them and the superficiality of the deeds that Jesus sees in that church is illustrated by the fact that he knows they have a name. A name simply means that they have a reputation. They're known in the community. People have heard of it. Maybe they know people who attend that church. Perhaps they've even been inside for an activity or an event. Perhaps they've attended for a worship service. We don't really know the specifics of what the reputation was like and how they had created a name for themselves. But this reputation is an outward appearance and it is not an internal reality It is not an internal spiritual quality that has any admirable traits to it. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, you have a reputation, and this reputation is that you are alive, that you are vibrant, that your church is vibrant, the people are living out their lives with an excitement and an enthusiasm In the Lord, they're busy doing stuff. And as the outside world looks in, they have concluded that this church appears to be a model of ministry. Now, again, because this is mixed in with the section on the rebuke, we know that this is merely an external appearance, not an internal truth about this church. Now, the church believes that it is vibrant because of the busyness, because of the hive of activity, perhaps because of the number of people who attend, perhaps because of its notoriety within the community. Whatever it means to them that they are alive and vibrant, we know that this isn't true because of the rebuke that Jesus gives to them They have a reputation of being alive, but Jesus says in the latter part of verse 1, but you are dead. Despite your reputation, despite the busyness of the church, despite all of the activity, despite the outward appearance and the attaboys that you get from the community around you, even though you might have mass approval of mankind, I declare that you are dead. Now, we need to remember that it really doesn't matter what man thinks or what man says. All that matters is what God thinks and what God says. Here, Jesus says, through the seven spirits of God, I know your deeds, you have a reputation, but hey, you are dead. 
When he says that they are dead, what he means by that is very simply this. You are in the grip of sin. You have been defiled by the world. You are characterized by internal decay. You are populated by unredeemed people. And you are simply playing church. I think that has to be one of the saddest commentaries that could be given to a church that thinks it's alive, that thinks it's vibrant, that thinks it has significant notoriety within the community, but God says, hey, you're simply playing a game and you are dead. The New Testament describes the cause of spiritual death and the cause of spiritual death is the innate, inherent sinfulness of man. We read, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so this assignment of spiritual death is placed upon unregenerate mankind and Jesus is saying to this church at Sardis I know your reputation but I declare that you are dead the implication is that the church at Sardis was potentially filled with unsaved people you know there isn't any rebuke for idolatry there isn't any rebuke for immorality there's nothing about them leaving their first love or about them tolerating sin there's simply a pronouncement of their being dead. As I think about that, it strikes me that that isn't too far off of an accurate description of the modern seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive church that is so predominant within our country today. They want to water down the gospel. They want to make it a neutral place where lost people can come in and hopefully, by some accident, they'll hear the gospel or that God will speak to them and their lives will forever be changed. But folks, as long as our church is dominated by unregenerate or by spiritually immature people, there's little hope that the gospel will be clearly and proudly proclaimed of even less of a chance that it will be accurately lived out in the lives of the people. And instead of the church being a light to the world, it becomes a ruse and a trap for those who think they found something significant. When the people of the church lose their spiritual vibrancy, or when the church becomes so appealing to the lost, or to those who are spiritually immature, there is a grave danger of that church dying. Popular author, Pastor John MacArthur, wrote this. He says, A church is in danger when it is content to rest on its past glories, when it is more concerned with liturgical forms and spiritual realities, when it focuses on curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts through preaching the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, when it is more concerned with material than spiritual things, when it is more concerned with what men think than with what God said, when it is more enamored with doctrinal creeds and systems of theology than with the Word of God, or when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the Word of God Himself. No matter what its attendance, 
no matter how impressive its building, no matter what its status in the community, such a church, having denied the only source of spiritual life, is dead. Now, if Mr. MacArthur's description is accurate, then we should be very, very careful that none of these things that he has mentioned is true for us today. We always ought to keep at the front of our hearts and minds the truth of God's word, the commission to go and make disciples, gathering together as a spiritual family, praying for and encouraging others so that when we leave the doors of the church, we can go out and be a light to those who are so spiritually lost. Now, we've seen the messenger and a little bit about what that means. We've looked now at the rebuke. And so now we turn our attention to number three in our outline, and this is the instruction. We find the instruction in verse 2, beginning in verse 2, and ending in the, middle, in the early part of verse 3. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in my sight. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. So in these verses, we find five pieces of instruction that Jesus gives to the church at Sardis and to any church that would be dead. First thing we read, number one, is wake up. To wake up means to be alert. It means to come to your senses. It would be like driving down the road at a high rate of speed, fast asleep, completely unaware of the danger and the surroundings. And in that environment, somebody else in the car would very quickly and loudly clap their hands and say, wake up, you're about to crash. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to the church, wake up. Now, if you and I were to go to the doctor and we were to have an examination and the doctor would say to us, you know, I've got some bad news for you. Your cholesterol is through the roof. Your blood pressure is dangerously high. You have the beginning of diabetes setting into your body. You are so overweight that if things don't quickly change, nothing good is going to happen for you. Now, if we were to hear that from our doctor, would we listen to the advice that the doctor gave to us, or would we say, well, thanks, doc, for the recommendation, for the suggestion, but I'm pretty happy with the way things are. I think I'm going to continue to do what I've always done. Now, if we were to say that, we would be fools, and we would be completely ignorant of the danger that is around us, and it is like that where Jesus says, wake up. It takes a radical reversal of attitude when the carnal, worldly culture of the church seeps and makes its way in and things have to change. We have to have a radical change of attitude. A church risks dying by ignoring the need to change when it's necessary to restore spiritual health. Now, the second part of the instruction is this. Strengthen what remains. Jesus says, the things that remain which were about to die. Now, the things here are not people. The things here are spiritual realities. It is any semblance of spiritual discipline, 
spiritual virtue that exists within the lives of the people of the church strengthen those things so that they will remain. It's a call to focus on the small amount of holiness and godliness and true Christian virtue that remains in that church and make it stronger than it is. The reality for the church at Sardis is time is short, decisive action is required, the only good things that they had in that church were about to die. Again, not the people, but those virtues and those qualities were about to die. Imagine, if you will, being awoken in your house, you're sound asleep, and you hear the scream, fire, there's a fire in the house. Now, you and I would most likely gather the most precious things that we have around us. We would grab our family members, we would grab our pets, we might go for a couple of uh, photograph albums, I venture to say we would not sit down and say, now let me think about what should I take most. I've got a lot of nice clothes, and I've got a nice, a nice thing, of, a, a nice piece of, of a stamp collection or a coin collection, and I've got a lot of nice things I'd like to save in case they get burned up in the fire. Is that what we would do? Absolutely not. If we were awoken out of a sound sleep to the shouts of fire, we would take instant and decisive action and we would flee. Isn't that right? This is what Jesus is calling the church at Sardis to do. It is to wake up and strengthen the things which remain, those good spiritual qualities, because they are about to die. Now, even in this instruction, on the heels of the rebuke, we see that there is some good news for this church. Jesus says, For I have not found your deeds to be completed in the sight of my God. That word completed means filled up to measure. So while time was running short, time had not yet run out. If they were to ignore the instruction of the Lord, what little time remained would likely expire and that church would end up dying and they would disappear into the annals of history. Now this being completed, this being filled up to the measure, is something that can be said about every Christian and about every church. The difference here is not our inability to be perfect, our inability to live out our Christian faith without any fault or blemish, the difference is the gross negligence that was taking place in this church that they were devoid of any consciousness or any desire to pursue the things that were really most important in their church, and that was the spiritual virtues that are to be true of all Christians. It isn't difficult to discover what the true virtues of a church should be and what we ought to cultivate in the life of our church. Acts 2, 42 and 43 says this about the early church in the days that it was formed. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. So this internal experience that these early believers were having 
is going to have an overflow into the ministry of the, of the church and into the relationships that the early church members had in their community. Acts 2, 46 and 47 continues to say, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I believe that the principle is still true today. That when we are devoted to the truth of God's word, to fellowshipping with one another and building our spiritual relationships, to praying with one another, encouraging one another, helping and strengthening one another, I believe that has an outward flow into the ministries of the church. And when that happens, it flows into the community at large and people see what the church is doing. They see what the people are like and it becomes attractive for the right reasons rather than getting our itchy ears scratched with what it is we want to hear. So the instruction is to wake up, strengthen what remains. Number three in this instruction is to remember the gospel. It says, remember what you have received and what you had heard. The implication is very, very obvious. What they have received and heard was the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. This is phrased in such a way as to mean keep on remembering, never, never forget. So the admonition here is that every day we are to remember the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That man, you and I, even though we were desperately lost and hopeless in our condition of sin, Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, to become our atonement, to give to us spiritual life, to make us new creatures in Christ. This is what we are to focus on every day. We are remember who Jesus is. We are to remember what Jesus has done and we are to pursue fulfilling His call on our life in every conceivable way. The reality is the gospel changes everything and people around us ought to see the change that has taken place for someone who has been forgiven and redeemed and set free and has now focused their life on living for and pleasing the Lord. Well, when we are infatuated, when we are affectionately pursuing who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we will be compelled to do what he's called us to do in sharing this with others. We read in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A church dies by forgetting its purpose and its mission. It dies by becoming internally focused to the neglect of the lost world around us, by focusing on what pleases man instead of what pleases God. So the call is to wake up. It is to strengthen what remains. It is to remember the gospel. Number four, it is to obey. Remember what you have seen and heard and keep it. That idea of keeping it means that we hold it close to us. We embrace it. 
We don't keep it at arm's length. We don't pick it up when it's convenient or necessary. But we have set our hearts and our minds to keep the significance of the gospel message. And we do that by obeying scripture that God has revealed to us as we spend time with him. Whatever God has has told us to do, whatever God is prompting you to do, obey those things. And when we do that, then we are keeping the gospel message. Again, this is phrased in such a way so as to mean keep on obeying, never stop obeying. Obedience to the gospel message doesn't begin and end at salvation. It begins in salvation and ends when our physical life is over and we are taken to glory for all of eternity with the Father. Obedience is critical in the life of every believer. To to disobey is to say no to God and yes to self. It is saying not your way, but my way. Not what you want, but I want. And although we all go through periods where that could be true of us, and while there might be areas where we really struggle in dying to those preferences, this is a church that has been dominated by that very position. Not your ways, but my ways. Not what you want, but what I want. Not what makes you happy, but what makes me happy instead. A church dies by continually disregarding the clear commands of Scripture, and choosing instead to live a life that pleases self. Now, the last part of the instruction, number five, is repent. Put it all together. Remember what you have seen and heard. Keep it and repent. A decisive action in response to the clear admonition of the Lord. Now, if this church really and truly had a reputation that they were alive, that they were vibrant, there would be no need for this very stern admonition of the Lord to repent. You and I each have areas where the Lord is speaking to us and saying, repent. Sometimes we hear those very clearly and we resist them. Other times, we are insensitive to what the Lord might be leading us to do. And so he speaks, but we're not paying attention and therefore we don't hear But when God speaks to us through his word, through a song, through a Bible study, through a sermon, what is our response to that? Do we say, forgive me, Lord, and do we then turn away from that sinfulness? Or do we justify and rationalize and excuse and blame somebody else for this fault that's in our own life? Well, for every believer, there should only be a single response to God confronting us of our sin and our need to repent, and that is, yes, Lord, I will repent. When we do this, when the church does this, this is what brings about revival. This is what brings about spiritual renewal. This is what breathes back into the church a real sense of life vitality of purpose and of supreme pleasure in living a life of sacrifice and commitment to the Lord. A church risks dying by refusing to correct the error of its way. So in the midst of this, of this instruction, on the heels of the rebuke, it's important that we notice the warning that we see in the latter part of verse 3. Jesus says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief 
and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So follow my instruction, repent, or else I am coming. He will come in judgment. Now, let me ask you this question. Do we believe that that is true? Does our intellectual agreement with Him coming to us in judgment for discipline, does that affect the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act? Does it affect what we do, what our priorities are, what our purpose is? Does he mean this, or is this a veiled threat? Is this like that little dog that has a lot of bark, but no bite? Well, that phrase, I will come to you, literally means, I will come upon you. He isn't coming for a visit. He isn't coming to sit down and discuss how things are going. He's coming to pronounce judgment, and he says, I will come upon you. I think about being the fourth of five brothers and having a significantly older, bigger, stronger, heavier brother who had come upon me and all you could do was just cry, uncle. You couldn't get up, you couldn't move, you couldn't get away, you couldn't do anything. And that's exactly the way it is here. If we don't repent, Jesus is going to come like a thief at a time that we do not expect, at a time that we could never know, and if he comes because we haven't repented, he will come in judgment and he will come upon us. But notice this. His coming to them is predicated on their willingness to repent. In other words, they have the ability to delay or to halt the judgment of God if they will just break free from their rebellion and do what God has called them to do, and repent. He's not yet on the way, but that doesn't mean he isn't going to come. Now, we've noticed the, the warning here, but I also want you to notice in verse 4, notice the separation. This really isn't a commendation to the church. It's an acknowledgement that not every single person is guilty of this rebuke that Jesus has given. Verse 4 says, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, one of the industries that was common and thriving within the city of Sardis was the dyeing of wool. And so you would take this white wool into the market, and they would dye it a certain color that you would ask them to, and so that white garment would then be stained with some kind of dye. And so the analogy is here that there is a holy remnant of people who have not yet had their spiritual garments soiled with sin. As you would take this white wool and have it dyed, it would be obvious that it had, that color had been changed. It may not be quite so obvious that our spiritual garments have been soiled, but make no mistake about it, the omnipotent, omnipresent God knows that this remnant is not yet guilty of their garments being soiled. That is a reference to their sinfulness. They have rebuffed the temptation or the invitation to join in the sin that dominated the church that had overwhelmed so many lives, and so they were a holy remnant to the Lord that had not yet given themselves over 
to the sinfulness that was there. You know, our external clothes are going to get stained by what we do. By what we do. If I go paint a room in my house, I'm going to get paint on my clothes. If I go and work in the yard, I'm likely going to have dirt and grass debris all over my clothes. If I go out in the garage and work on a car, I'm going to have grease on my clothes. What we do soils our clothes and how we live our lives is going to soil our spiritual garments in such a way that they would not reflect the holiness and the purity that Christ asks us to preserve in our life in this world. Now, we can't do that to perfection. It's not possible for us to live our lives and not have any staining of our garments. But again, this holy remnant had not given themselves over to this life of sin. What Jesus says to them in this verse is, they will walk with him. They will walk with me in garments of white. This speaks of a future event, not a literal time during the physical life of the people at the church at Sardis. But it speaks of a future event when we are ushered into eternity. We will join the Lord for all of eternity and he will clothe us with his holy and righteous garments. We'll look at this again at the latter part of this passage of scripture. And he says, for they are worthy. Now be careful that that doesn't mean that there is some intrinsic worthiness of them walking with him in white, or that they have earned or deserved the privilege of walking with him in white. This isn't based upon their own merit, but because of the saving grace of Christ and their continued faithfulness to walk with him to the end, proving the authenticity of their faith in Christ. And we're talking just a second about salvation by grace through faith. But this is what Jesus means for they are worthy. Not they've earned it or deserved it, but they have demonstrated the authenticity of their faith and they've continued to live a life of purity for him. Now the rest of the church at Sardis could not have this said about them. What would be more applicable to this group of people at the church of Sardis? We would find in this challenge in 1 John, verses 6, six through 7, the same apostle that wrote the book of, of Revelation, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. To walk in means it's a steady practice of our life. It's not an error. It's not a lapse of judgment. It's not a bad decision. It's what dominates our life. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light... As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Again, the white spiritual garments that we will be clothed with as a result of our faith in Christ. Now, our lives on this earth are a daily test of our obedience to Christ, and it will demonstrate the authenticity of the profession of faith that we have made. Now, the very last part of our outline here, this is number four. Number four is his promise. We see this in verse five. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So these promises that Jesus is going to make is to the overcomer, 
And these three promises are made to all true believers. Not those who make a profession of faith, not those who play church, not those who attend with some regularity. But this promise is made to the overcomer, to the individual who proves the authenticity of his profession of faith. So to the one that overcomes, Jesus promises, number one, our future glory. He says, we will be clothed in white garments. And this reference is back to what we've already looked at, that the faithful remnant will walk with him in white garments. And this again speaks of our future eternity with the Lord. White represents purity and holiness. And in our future glory, we will be clothed with the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. Now, we possess that already right now. Positionally, we are as white as snow, even though we live our lives in such a way that we are constantly stained by the practice of sin. But eventually, we will be completely freed from the presence of sin, and we will be clothed in His righteousness, reflecting His purity and His holiness. Number two, and the promise that Jesus makes, is our permanent relationship. He says in 5b, And I will not erase his name from the book of life. So for the true believer, the one who will be clothed in Christ's righteousness, there is this guarantee, I will never erase your name from the book of life. Now this is going to cause some questions. So what we need to do is we look at what this verse says and what it means, is we need to remember that this verse does not teach that God is threatening to erase names from the book of life, it simply confirms that God won't erase the names of the true believer. But this verse raises a theological debate. Does this mean that God could or God would erase names from the book of life? Well, the short answer is no. The context makes it very, very clear what Jesus is talking about. This is a promise to the faithful remnant. It's a promise to those who will wake up from their spiritual death and receive the gospel message, obey it and repent of their sin, it's a promise, it isn't a threat. So as a part of context and understanding what Jesus is saying here, we need to restate what are the foundational doctrinal truths about our salvation. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not, by, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, if we believe that salvation is by grace through faith, then we must not interpret erasure as a possibility, because what is received by grace through faith is secured by grace through the Father. The one who gave us this gift of salvation out of his grace is the one that is going to secure our salvation because of his grace. Now, if we believe that salvation was works-based, then this verse could be considered a threat or a possibility. So again, this challenges, do we believe in salvation by grace through faith, or do we believe in salvation as a result of what man does or doesn't do. Now, in the same book of Revelation, John would speak about those who have rejected Christ, 
those who are outside of the family of God by virtue of their rejection of Christ. And it says in Revelation 13 and 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, not Christ, but the beast or the, the Satan figure. Everyone whose name has not been written from, from the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now you'll notice that John says the names that are written and the book of life were written there from the beginning of time. Before anyone ever had a chance to accept or reject Christ, God the Father wrote the names of those that would be saved in the book of life. So let me ask you this question. Would God erase something that he wrote from the very beginning of time? Well, the answer is absolutely not. From the very beginning, beginning excuse me, from the very beginning of time, God decreed that he would send his one and only son to complete the plan of redemption before there was ever a known need for redemption. So would God ever change that plan of redemption that was established before the beginning of time? Well, the answer to that is no. And I believe we can say the same thing here. Certainly, John would not contradict himself and say that erasure from the book of life was possible in the church at Sardis, but then say that the names, of the, the names of those written in the book of life were written before the foundation of the world. Now, Romans 8, 1 and 2 very, very clearly teaches this same idea about the security of our salvation and the inability of our name being erased from the book of life. In Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who are those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, it's those that have made the profession of faith. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So if we were set free from the law of sin and death at the moment of our salvation, is God going to rescind that freedom because we didn't do or because we did? Absolutely not, because that would result in a works-based salvation. Nowhere does Paul make our salvation conditional on what we do or on what we don't do. Either we have been set free from the law of sin and death, or we have not. Now, it's also important to remember that the same God who revealed to John... The Gospel of John, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation is the same God who revealed to Paul exactly what he wanted them to say, what it was he wanted them to write. Certainly, Paul would have argued the same thing as the possibility of erasure from the book of life if salvation was based upon what we do or didn't do as opposed to it being based on grace through faith. So the same God revealed to Paul as revealed to John. There is no contradiction in what was revealed to them. John is not teaching that we can have our name erased. He's simply affirming that the faithful remnant, those who profess faith in Christ and live out the authenticity of that faith in Christ, to the very end are given these promises. It is not to be understood as a threat. Now, the third promise that Jesus makes 
And this little verse here is our heavenly introduction. Latter part of verse 5, And I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. It's amazing to understand, to know, that Jesus Himself is going to introduce us to the Father and to all of the angelic beings. It isn't delegated off to one of the apostles, and that would be amazing. Not to an archangel, which would be amazing. But Jesus Himself is going to be the one that introduces us to the Father and to all of the heavenly inhabitants that exist with Him in eternity. And as always, this promise is followed by an appeal. We see this in verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear. Obviously not talking about physical ears or the ability to audibly hear. He's talking about to those who have spiritual ears who will listen very sincerely to what it is the messenger is saying today. The appeal is for whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what I am saying. Secondly, this message comes from Christ Himself. It is what the capital S Spirit says. Not the, not the, past, the pastor or the angel, but it is the message from Jesus Himself who has revealed Himself in this passage as the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the one who holds the seven stars. And as always, this message is given to all the churches. So this message written by the Apostle John, way back in 8090, speaks to us today because it is Christ himself. He speaks to all who have an ear to hear what it is that he says today. We have to ask ourselves, spiritually speaking, are we playing a game? Are we guilty of a charade? Are we wearing a mask? Are we not serious about our walk with the Lord? Have we given ourselves over to a life of sin? As we seek the Lord, as we come before Him with honesty and with earnestness, asking Him to speak to us, to reveal to us the truth about our spiritual condition, when He speaks, will we repent? Would you pray with me, please? Well, Father, as difficult as it is to hear words like this, we know that we need to hear them because it wakes us up to what is essential in our lives. It isn't the outward appearance. It isn't what others think. It is what you know, and it is what you say. God, I pray that all who hear this message would give serious consideration to what it means. I pray that we would be thrilled with the fact that you have given to us Salvation by grace through faith. I thank you that we have security in our salvation, knowing that you aren't going to erase our names from the book of life. We give you thanks, Father, for the the future of glory that awaits all who are truly your children. God, I pray that in the midst of how we fail and how we go astray, that we would cling to your love and your goodness and your graciousness, that we would give you thanks that we can't exhaust your mercy, we can't outrun your grace. But the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, has covered every sin, and it has made us as white as snow. May you find in us a desire to see that to be more true in our physical earthly life 
tomorrow than it was today. May you have your way in every heart and every life. May you receive all the glory and all the honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.